What's up, everybody? This is your host, Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Every week, I'm talking to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, and basically anyone else with an interesting story to tell. So sit down, strap in, and get ready, because we're going deep. Let's go. Roundlyx.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is they take all your small purchases and they round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that money into any of 25 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can round up into different assets all at the same time. And they do this all without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. You'll never even notice that the money is gone from your account and you'll look up one day and hopefully you'll have made thousands and thousands of dollars on crypto. Roundlyx, that's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com. Go sign up now. When I need to trade crypto on the go, Voyager is the only app I trust. It's so intuitive and simple. In just a few minutes, you can download the app, create an account and transfer cash from your bank account to start trading. Voyager offers commission-free trading. That's right, free trading of more than 30 top crypto assets, which has saved me tons of money on fees. The best part? They're offering interest on Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Litecoin, and multiple stable coins. No lockups or limits. Visit investvoyager.com or search Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free, that's right, free Bitcoin to try out my favorite crypto trading app. Use promo code SCOTT25. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only event and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Hi, everyone. As you know, my main focus on the show is to provide accurate and factual information from vetted sources about the global coronavirus crisis and global markets. Today's guest is certainly an expert on the former. Dr. Jeff Swisher is the chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco, the Sutter flagship hospital in Northern California. Uh, As you likely know, San Francisco was one of the first cities in the United States to go into lockdown. So I'm looking forward to hearing his experiences, both as a physician and a civilian in Northern California. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time out of your packed schedule to join me. Hey, Scott, it's great to be here. You know, hopefully we can uh, cover a lot of ground today. That's the plan. So you sent over your CV, Mm -hmm. uh, which was basically a novella. (laughs) You have have a 10-page list of accomplishments and accolades. Uh, Very impressive. But can you tell us a bit about what you're doing now? Okay. So um, I am the chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology at Cal Pacific Medical Center, as you you said. Um, And so the job uh, is administrative, but it's uh, clinical as well. I'm a full-time clinical uh, physician uh, with a full-time clinical schedule, and my administrative uh, activities are are essentially on the side uh, to what I do clinically. So that's interesting. So what is your focus clinically? Like, what kind of patients do you generally see? What kind of procedures do you do? Right. So, you know, as, as you mentioned, Sutter is the, uh, the hospital in San Francisco, CPMC, is essentially our, our flagship hospital. It's the quaternary medical center for, for Sutter. Uh, so we basically get everything in our hospital. We do everything from uh, pediatric uh, cases down to newborn neonatal cases, uh, all the way up to uh, liver transplants. My specialty is liver transplantation, solid organ transplantation, but I do pretty much everything. I don't do pediatrics anymore. I used to, and I don't do cardiac anesthesia because we have subspecialty teams for both of those. But uh, as I said, I do everything else. So tonight, for instance, I'm on obstetrics, so I'm going to be going in at 6 p.m. and doing cases tonight all night. Uh, epidurals so, and C-sections. Go ahead. 
So you're still going into the hospital on a daily basis? Yeah, I am. I, uh, you know, we have cut back our schedule dramatically since last week. We stopped doing all elective surgeries uh, last week, and now we're only doing urgent and emergent cases, which still is quite a bit, but nowhere near. It's a, it's a fraction of the cases that we do on a daily basis. So as I mentioned before, San Francisco is definitely one of the sort of epicenters of this crisis. At least that's how the country is viewing it. What are you currently seeing at your hospital with regard to COVID-19? Well, we're starting to see it. Uh, I, I would say it's a little bit more than a trickle now. Uh, last week, we started seeing our first patients that were COVID positive patients uh, in our hospital. And we have what are called PUIs or persons under uh, investigations or persons under interest. Um, and those are patients that we suspect may be COVID positive, but have not tested positively yet. Uh, we have many more of those in the hospital, but we have about uh, currently about 10 to 15 or so uh, COVID positive patients uh, in the hospital. Can you tell me what the protocol is for someone? Uh, first of all, for those patients who are of interest, mm -hmm. uh, are they of interest because of their symptoms or because they're awaiting the results of a test? Um, which, which is it generally? Yeah, usually it's their symptoms uh, that they come in with, uh, you know, with, with uh, complaints, respiratory complaints, or they have a, a history which is consistent with being uh, a person of interest, either travel or um, uh, or, or symptomatic uh, complaints that make them a person of interest. That's interesting. So even if they're there and they're a person of, an inter of interest, they're not getting tested yet. Uh, no, they would be tested, and you I know, fortunately, you. fortunately, tests are becoming more rapid. The molecular tests for, uh, for, for um, SARS-NCoV-2 is getting a little bit more uh, rapid in terms of the ability to find out. So we should be able to find out for those who are positive fairly quickly, but still, even though someone is potentially positive, their tests may be negative uh, for a while uh, just due to the sensitivity of the test. Um, and so that they may have a negative test but become positive several days later. Oh, I didn't realize that false negatives were an issue. Not false negatives. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yes, false negatives yes, is right, definitely yeah. an issue, right? Yes. Yeah. So for every test, as you probably know, there's a sensitivity and a specificity. Uh, and the specificity of the test is very good. So in other words, if it's positive, it's like 99 plus percent that it is, in fact, uh, SAR, you know, SARS-2, uh, you know, covid um, and or NCoV two. If it's negative, that does not necessarily mean you don't have it. It just means that it's not detected yet. Hmm. That's a bit scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because that I would assume that in some places that means someone tests negative and goes home. That's correct. Um, that's right. I mean, the 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 way that uh, someone is tested for this is usually either a nasal or a pharyngeal swab. And depending on how much virus is shedding, how good the uh, specimen collection is, I mean, there's a lot of factors which would uh, which which would alter the way a, a specimen is is taken, uh, whether or not it is positive, whether there's enough uh, molecular RNA to uh, amplify in the PCR test, um, which is how these molecular tests work, uh, which is why typically you need a couple tests to uh, see if someone has been treated and is it or has recovered from it and is now negative. Yeah, that's why you have to look for a couple of negative tests afterwards to be fairly confident. Right, because there's been cases where they, uh, at least, uh, you know, rumored out of China and other places where they believe people were reinfected, but it seems more likely that it was a result of the tests coming up negative and it just being a poor test. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and it's very possible that people can 
not necessarily get reinfected, but reestablish uh, an infection that's already there. Um, and uh, they start shedding virus again. There's been some concern about that in people who have uh, been recovered, but may still be shedding virus. Is there also a chance that like the flu, it sort of uh, evolves uh, on a regular basis and yearly it's sort of a different version of this coronavirus? Yeah, uh, the coronavirus, this particular strain of coronavirus, uh, they've seen from what I've been reading in uh, some of the medical or the, mostly the scientific literature, like Lancet and Science, et cetera, that, uh, that, that it has some kind of drift, a genetic drift. Um, and uh, so the early, early isolates that were from China uh, versus isolates that they're taking now may have variations, but uh, it's still pretty much the same strain of virus. It, it just may have some different RNA sequencing inside of it right now. So when someone comes in uh, symptomatic or asymptomatic, but they do get the test and they test positive, what's the protocol? What does it look like? Uh, how are they processed in the hospital? What do you guys do? Well, first off, do they have symptoms which require them to be hospitalized, number one? I mean, just because someone tests positive doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to be hospitalized. Uh, if they're not sick, uh, they are sent home with instructions to isolate and quarantine themselves uh, with, obviously, careful you know, follow-up to make sure that if they do get sick, that they come back into the hospital. So that, that represents a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of people who are asymptomatic carriers of this virus uh, who are not sick at all. Um, so if someone is obviously coming into the hospital, uh, most hospitals, at least in California now, at least in San Francisco, will really only test you if you have some kind of either positive travel history or, or have symptoms. So screening tests like we see happening more currently in New York and certainly that have happened in Korea yeah. and Singapore and places like that, those aren't happening to the extent which uh, we would hope they would uh, in California just due to a lack of test kits. So in a perfect scenario, you would be testing everyone. Yeah, you'd be screening people to see who you would isolate. And, you know, this we can talk about this later, about the success of uh, countries like South Korea in terms of how they handle this virus. Uh, they were able to screen a lot of people. And as a result, uh, with a combination of social tracking and you know, cell phone tracking, et cetera, uh, with in, you know, index cases, they were able to isolate them very quickly and get them out of circulation to the population so they couldn't reinfect other people. Right. So I'm curious, as a physician, how do you reconcile wanting to protect yourself and your family from the virus, but also wanting to care for your patients? That's a great question. Uh, the Obviously, taking care of myself, I can't be a good doctor unless I take care of myself. And that's true whether or not this was a, uh, uh, you know, we had a pandemic, uh, you know, or, or just normally I take, I take good care of myself by making sure I get adequate sleep when I can. I exercise, I eat healthy, I don't smoke, you know, I limit drinking, et cetera, like that. Uh, but in this current crisis, we really have to be scrupulous about how we uh, take care of ourselves in terms of hand washing, isolation from people, everything that we're recommending to the entire population, we really have to be careful uh, with ourselves. And we have to be sure that when we do have interactions with positive patients, that we follow um, very careful protocol, depending on what it is we're doing for those patients. Right. But when you're seeing these patients, we're hearing that the hospitals are woefully underprepared as far as personal protective equipment, that they're running out of essential items. Mm -hmm. So how do you protect yourself if you don't have the gear to do so? Well, we try to get the gear, number one. So, you know, fortunately, my hospital, uh, the Sutter uh, facilities uh, in San Francisco, at least, we have not seen the type of surge that is happening in New York and certainly it's happening in Italy and other countries 
Uh, and so right now, uh, we are pretty well prepared. We have had a huge amount of donations of things like N95 masks. Uh, I was telling someone the other day that the Irish uh, Union uh, workers in San Francisco donated uh, something like 300 boxes of masks. Wow. Uh, and we're getting a lot of uh, donations from the public. Um, we did, in, we had a lot of expired N95 masks that we were able to get, even though they would not be used in a normal circumstance. Uh, in this circumstance, of course, they're perfectly good. They just have an expiration date on them. So we can use those if we need. Uh, and we're trying to get as many other personal protective equipment uh, as we can, including, uh, that includes buying some of our own. Uh, like a lot of members of my group have uh, banded together and have gone out and bought our own personal protective equipment, which would be things like face shields, uh, uh, 3M N100 respirators, uh, et cetera. And we've gotten permission from the hospital to use our own PPE, um, you know, because, you know, certainly you can't be too careful. And, you know, anesthesiologists as a group tend to be uh, very fastidious individuals. And so that a lot of our group has gone out and purchased uh, PPEs. How does it happen that hospitals are so woefully, woefully short on these essential items? I mean, it, it almost seems like they've only got a week's worth of backup at any given time or even less. Because like you said, I mean, you're not even you guys aren't inundated with cases and you're already going out and depending on somewhat donations and, you know, physicians getting it for themselves. So why is it that hospitals don't have right. you know, a much larger stock of these items? Well, because unfortunately, you know, it's I, I likened it to a situation of the old fairy tale by La Fontaine, the ant and the grasshopper, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the grasshopper fiddles away while the ant is working hard. And a lot of us by nature tend to be uh, grasshoppers. I think it's human nature. Uh, and really what we need to be uh, in the light of, of, of crises like this is we all needed to be more more ants. You know, we needed to prepare better. And I, I think that. You know, I, I feel very fortunate to be uh, working at, at, the host, at the CPMC because I think we have prepared pretty well. But again, nobody really expected a pandemic. And I think nationally, certainly nobody did. And we can get into issues about ventilators and various other things. But the last crisis that I remember having to prepare for is when the Ebola crisis happened. Uh, we did, you know, increase our stock of PPEs and et cetera. But I think that people just didn't expect, you know, it's human nature. And I think we're as well prepared as any hospital in San Francisco. And I am very actually grateful to the uh, administration of my hospital that they've really been on the ball since this has happened. Uh, and they're trying their hardest to try to get us as much equipment as we can. So uh, we haven't been inundated, though, you know, like New York has, certainly like right. Italy has, you know, so, you know, we'll see. I mean, I saw pictures of uh, lines of hundreds of people outside New York City emergency rooms today. And it's just I mean, it's really I know. It, it is shocking. It, it, it is. It is shocking. This is I have never seen anything like this in my life. I'm 59 years old, you know, and, and uh, uh, I hope I never see anything like this again. Uh, it's just but, you know, th this is the nature of living in a global society in a lot of ways. I mean, things like pandemics, even though we knew about it, theoretically, they could happen. Certainly there have been movies like Outbreak and Hot Zone, books like that. And I think that, uh, you know, listen, climate change is real, right? And we're not doing what we should be for climate change. It's just, uh, it's, it's human nature, unfortunately. But we're, we're trying as best we can to catch up. Funny, the silver lining here might be actually a slowing in uh, climate change while everybody's yeah. Yeah. at home and planes yeah. don't fly. And you see these astounding images of, you know, pollution over China and Italy and 
it's uh it's sort of that you know I, oh, i'm sure yeah. you've seen the, the venice yeah, canals yeah, are clear yeah, with yeah. just swimming <laughs> yeah yeah the lack of the lack of pollution yeah Italy, i mean uh los angeles the skies over la and and like i mean i'm really fortunate i live in marin county which is one of the cleanest places on the planet earth uh and you know because of prevailing winds etc that uh, mm-hmm. I, i'm very spoiled where i live right on the base of mount tamapayas so you did just touch on uh, ventilators, and those are yeah. kind of the, the talk of the town, certainly. Um, obviously, they're an essential item for treating this. It, are, are ventilators a life-saving equipment here? Are they palliative? Uh, is it something that makes the person more comfortable, or does it actually keep them alive while they fight the virus? Yeah. And why don't we have enough? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, good question. Uh, th- yes, they're life-saving, and they're required. Uh, keep in mind that ventilators are used in hospitals for a, a lot of reasons. They're not, you know, they're just not palliative. I mean, in a sense, you know, palliative is what we do to keep someone comfortable while they're in the process of dying. Uh, typically, if someone says they're going to die, it's very common for patients to be taken off ventilators and right. you know, left to die. So, so they are life-saving, and they're very commonly used uh, for patients who developed uh, develop ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. For a variety of reasons, not just from a viral infection, but you could aspirate, for instance, and develop ARDS. You could have uh, HIV and develop ARDS. Uh, you could have surgery, for instance, and develop ARDS. So, you know, postoperatively, of course, a lot of patients are put on ventilators to rest them for the mm-hmm. two or three days after very large operations. For instance, uh, let's say you have a cardiac bypass or a liver transplant. It's not unusual to be on a ventilator for. Uh, uh, at least a day after that kind of surgery. Um, and then there are people who become uh, sick as a result of, let's say, a neurologic condition uh, where they have brain damage and they require a ventilator because their brain doesn't trigger, trigger them to breathe. Um, and people who have strokes, people who have you know, various other medical conditions requiring them to be on a ventilator. So hospital intensive care units are already full. And I've mentioned this on prior you know, podcasts and, and uh, other things that we don't run essentially empty. We run fairly full. So most of our ventilators are in use. And of course, we have a reserve uh, of ventilators in the hospital in excess of the number of rooms we have potentially to put them in. But uh, we don't have that many, you know, in, in reserve. Uh, they're expensive pieces of equipment and they're very, you know, high tech, uh, complex pieces. So you, you just don't have ventilators you know, lying around in the hallway. Um, so, so, you know, hospitals have a limited number of these things. And, uh, of course, all it takes is a 10 or 15 percent bump in the, the number of patients who require them. And all of a sudden you have a lack of them. That's really scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, it is. I mean, you see these images coming out of Italy and places like that where they, effectively the entire hospitals become a massive emergency room, even sure. thousand bed hospitals or, yeah. or yeah. ICU. ICU. Yeah. 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 They, become, they become ICUs. Right. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's not a lot of people in, a, in, a, in an emergency room on ventilators. There's a couple down in the in the. Uh, typically portable ventilators to bring them up to the ICU. Right. Uh, another place that uh, that we have ventilators uh, that people often don't think about is in the operating room. Uh, the anesthesia machine that I use to put people to sleep incorporated in that is a ventilator because I ventilate people. Uh, I take over their breathing for them for a lot of operations. I mean, even small ones, like if you're having your appendix taken out or your gallbladder, I paralyze you after I put you to sleep and then I breathe for you. You're not breathing right. on your own, right? So the, the the ventilator that I use in the operating room can be repurposed as an ICU ventilator, uh, but of course that ties up the operating room, so I can't do operations, you know, if I've taken away my anesthesia machine. And so this is one of the the problems we face. How many keep do we keep separate 
for operations versus the demand for ventilators for uh, you know for this this crisis. And so we have to think about that uh, because we just can't shut down the operating rooms. We still need to do strokes and heart attacks and uh, you know liver transplants, kidney transplants. These are all things that are ongoing that we have to continue to do. And also we need to leave space in the operating room for those patients, right? Because those those people are still coming in. Right. It sounds like that a lot of uh, people aren't considering that secondary effect, which is that if the hospitals get overwhelmed, even if they're managing to, you know, treat the COVID patients, what happens to all these other patients? What happens if you get in a car accident and you need to go to a hospital that's completely overwhelmed with COVID patients? That's right. So, so that's one of the, the, you know, the, the jobs of hospital administration and consultation with people like me, chairman of anesthesia, chairman of surgery, uh, that we have to plan for this by looking at past numbers of cases and try to shunt as much as we can. Like that's why we canceled all elective surgery, for instance. So right now in San Francisco, you cannot get, let's say, a total knee replacement or your hip replaced, uh, you know, short of an emergency. If you fracture your hip, sure, we'll do that. But we're not going to do elective surgery. Plastic surgery, if you, you know, for cosmetic right. is, is done. It's just not happening right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so yes, you're right. There is a secondary mortality as a result of this disease that care that would not have nor that would have normally been given right now might not be given as a result of overcrowding of the hospitals. Yeah. So I saw actually uh, touching on that. I saw a video um, from a physician in Spain today who was saying that at this point, they're basically having to take anyone over 60 off of ventilators and, you know, give them yeah. basically medication and watch them uh, pass away yeah. so that they can save younger people. I know. Um, that's- that's, that's a is that, you, is that what you foresee coming? I hope not. Boy, I sure hope not. I mean, that's, that is just a horrible circumstance. I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to be 60 this year and I'm a very healthy person. I still think of myself as I, as, as a 15 year old, uh, you know, it's just, cause that's how people think of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly. Right. I'm probably, my maturity level is probably about there too, but, but, uh, at least my kids tell me that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the fact is 60 is young. It's really young. I mean, think it of the, the average age in this country uh, uh, is, you know, is, is, and that's because there's a lot of people who die young is in the seventies. So most people can expect in this country, if they live to 60, they're going to live into their eighties. Right. Uh, and to be able to say, or even further, right. And to, to basically, uh, you know, say that I'm not going to save the life of a 60 year old. That's pretty extreme. It is. And, uh, so perhaps this is a time to do fact or fiction. Um, okay. With COVID, mm-hmm. we keep hearing and we have heard uh, that it only kills old people. Yeah. That, uh, from what you're seeing, is that true? No, that's fiction. Um, a lot of the people that we see, uh, especially in China, we see some of the healthcare workers in their 30s and 40s. Uh, there was a very good article in the New York Times, uh, this not this past weekend, but the weekend before, about a young nurse who died. Uh, and she was in her 30s. Uh, of, uh, of this. And, you know, while I haven't seen many case reports of younger people, I just heard, uh, about a, I think a 12 year old, uh, who has, who has, who's sit very sick with this. So it, you know, I think it generally, it's going to affect older people more, but it's certainly younger people are not immune to this at all. And our healthcare, I mean, obviously healthcare workers are more at risk of contracting it because they're in close proximity to patients. But right. I also read something that it seemed like healthcare workers, as you mentioned, like that nurse are actually, you know, seeing worse cases of it. Is that due to 
more exposure, more of the virus? Why would that be the case? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here. I don't know. Yeah. The, I have the science of it, but I would think that the uh, what's called the inoculum, how much virus that you're exposed to and how long you're exposed to it uh, definitely uh, has an effect and how quickly your body is overwhelmed by the virus. So as you know, when you get this virus and you intake it into your body, uh, it attaches to specific receptors on epithelial cells. And, you know, you do have an immune response even to viruses that you don't normally, you know, see. You, know, you don't, may not necessarily have a very profound antibody response, but you still have cells that are scavenging your, your immune system to invaders. And that's how, you know, a lot of uh, surface, you know, antibodies um, get rid of, you know, even novel viruses that they encounter. And eventually, if you get enough, you build an immune response to these things. That's what, called, that's what immunity is. Uh, but, you know, it's possible that you could be overwhelmed by a viral load and especially healthcare workers and people like me who are really up close and personal with these people. And we're doing procedures which are, quote unquote, high risk procedures, uh, which aerosolize the virus. So we might get a, a larger uh, amount of virus. And that's why it's super important to be very careful with our PPEs. So we dispelled the uh, myth that it only attacks old people um, or yep. kills old people. Are yep. there other myths that you're seeing, whether coming from the government, mainstream media, or just, you know, sort of being disseminated through the uh, old game of telephone on social media that yeah. we can dispel? Well, I've, I've seen a lot of you know crazy things saying that if you can, you know, like my mother, for instance, uh, uh, said, is, I heard that it's that if you can hold your breath for 20 seconds, you don't yeah. have the virus. Do yeah. the 10 second test <laughs> yeah. in the morning. I got that yeah. one from my mom as well. Yeah, actually. no, that's not yeah. true. <laughs> so that is completely not true. Um, you know, I'm sure there's there's lots of myths out there. And, you know, mostly I try to not read the breathless, uh, you know, uh, news articles that I see coming from places like, you know, the New York Post and various other places. But uh, I try to I try to read, you know, good journals. I try to read CDC. I try to read Lancet Science. Yeah. Uh, reputable. New York Times, I have to say, has been very good with this. Um, and even San Francisco Chronicle, SF Gate has been very good. The Guardian has been a great source of information. Uh, I, I have a son who lives in Australia, and he sends me articles from The Guardian from Australia that are quite good. That's interesting. So what would you say? I mean, we know that I think it's common knowledge that we've had a poor dissemination of information in general, both from the government and media. But would you say that um, they're largely responsible for some of the bad behavior that we're seeing people out on the beaches, people obviously Disney's mm -hmm. closed now, but the famous now images that will probably go down in infamy of, you know, tens of thousands of people watching the last fireworks show at Disney World. Yeah. Um, yeah, you the know, same thing with the beaches on Miami Beach, you know, or Fort Lauderdale, yeah. seeing all the students. I, yeah. I think, I think, I mean, clearly, I, I think the government is to blame for not uh, getting on this faster. I mean, I think that it's normal, again, for people to be in denial. I, I think that this particular administration uh, is not what I would call a science-forward administration. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you know, Trump himself, uh, I think a, a, a unique uh you know, a unique blend of characteristics, including, you know, toxic malignant narcissism, germophobia, uh, anti-science, uh, ignorance. Uh, he, he's not a curious man, it seems. And as a result of this combination, uh, he basically has been suppressing information that he probably was getting in January uh, about this. Now, remember, it's not been that long since uh, China uh, basically gave us a sequence of this virus and kind of right. told us what was going on. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually shorter than Trump himself says. He said at some point, well, three or four months ago, 
Uh, and that's not the case. I mean, they didn't really know what was going on probably until December. Uh, and then they started seeing the real problems. And then in January, when we should have been doing something, of course, you know, the, the stories about the, uh, and, and obviously I've seen rebuttals to this, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is that the, that the WHO tests that we could have used for this, the government decided they were going to go their own way. And yeah. they, they did dismantle a, a good portion of the CDC response team for pandemics uh, etc. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds with, uh, you know, he said, she said about that kind of thing, but they could have been a lot more uh, astute about warning people, especially when they saw some of the things that were happening over in, uh, in Europe start to take off. Well, that's interesting that you touched on this earlier, but there are governments like South Korea that um, reacted uh, clearly much in a much more favorable manner right. than uh, the governments of Europe or us. Can you talk about why South Korea has been so successful in fighting this? Yeah. So South Korea, as, as you know, is a very technologically forward country. I mean, they their Internet, for instance, their Internet speeds that they have in, in Korea are so much faster and they're so much more penetrated than we are. Uh, obviously, they were a, a lot more penetrated with uh, very high-speed cell phone networks that were able to basically track individual movements. Uh, and they had, as a result of the MERS virus back in the 2012 to 2014, uh, I think that really got their attention. And as a result of the MERS crisis, uh, they really ramped up their production of these molecular tests. And so they were, they were prepared uh, once the sequence of this virus was known to really ramp up um, and to be able to do the, with the, it's called the RT-PCR or reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction tests uh, much, much more rapidly and in huge volume, which is why they were able to do the screening that they did. Um, they didn't have the shortage of reagents, for instance, that, that we're experiencing now uh, because they were on the ball. They had a lot of these tests. The other issue that Korea had that, you know, we don't have is the issue of privacy uh, as much as we have here. So the government was able to really carefully track individual people's movements down to, you know, probably feet and yards as a result of cell towers pinging where their locations were. And in combination of the fact that the index cases that they, they, they knew were able to share that health information with the government. So they knew a patient was positive with COVID uh, hmm. with, the, with the virus. We have HIPAA laws, which actually prevent us from identifying individuals. So right. while, we, while we can use a lot of metadata, uh, uh, they actually can use data, I mean, actual data. Um, and that, I think, allowed them, in addition to, I think, their society, uh, it's a different society than our country. We're, we're used to a lot more uh, individual liberties. They're used to much more that they trust their government. And if the government says something, uh, they do it. Uh, that's at least that's my take on it. I mean, it's, I, I suspect it's a simplistic take and maybe a Korean will laugh at me. But I think that's what it, it seems happened, at least in Singapore and countries like that, that yeah. have, a, have a little less uh, reliance on the individual and a little bit more a reliance on the group and a lot more group dynamic. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think here that people would view it as a violation of their, you know, civil liberties or privacy, as you said. But ironically, those are the things in a situation like this that can save lives and mass. I've talked about this with other guests before, mm -hmm. you know, the very things that we uh, despise about China and their authoritarian government and, and mm -hmm. communism and all those things are the ones that in this very specific sort of case probably play in their favor for, you know, treating their populace and, and slowing the disease. 
Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's interesting, but uh, I don't know if you, you listen to my sister's podcast, Pivot, uh, but her and uh, Scott Galloway have had this discussion uh, a lot about the role of individuality versus, uh, you know, personal liberty versus more control. And I know Scott's been a big advocate more of, uh, you know, that we should have a little less personal control. Um, and uh, my sister sometimes argues the, the opposite about that. And this is referencing things like Facebook knowledge and various things like that. But, but it's an interesting discussion. And I think we're going to have a lot of conversations when we do a post hoc analysis of, uh, of this um, afterwards. So, uh, so since we didn't mention it and everyone doesn't know, I guess we can say that you're not the only uh, accomplished person in your family. Can you tell us about, about your sister and who she is? Yeah, yeah. Kara. Well, she's a lot, a hell of a lot more famous than I am. Uh, Kara Swisher is the uh, tech journalist that uh, started uh, a long time ago writing about tech, really back in the 1990s. Um, she, you know, started off writing a book about America Online, and that segued into. A career with the Wall Street Journal, where she started uh, her conference, All Things Digital, uh, which she co-owned with the Wall Street Journal and Walt Mossberg, uh, one of the really the, uh, one of the icons of, of the technology of journalism. Walt is, um, and then uh, Kara and um, uh, Walt started um, Recode Decode, uh, which is then bought by Vox Media. And so it's co-owned by Vox and Kara, I think actually wholly owned by Vox. But uh, so, and now she's also a New York Times uh, opinion columnist and she puts out an article maybe once a week. And she has two podcasts, one called Recode Decode, which won podcast of the year last year from Adweek, as well as another one called Pivot, which is uh, okay, so Scott Galloway. Very impressive family. So I guess to, <laughs> to, to pivot slightly off of uh, yeah. all the COVID <laughs> and sad talk. So yeah. Where, where did you guys collectively get that kind of drive? I mean, what, what kind of family were you raised in? Uh, uh, boy, yeah. you know, we had a, a very interesting family. So my dad was a doctor. He was an anesthesiologist uh, like I am. Um, unfortunately, he died when he was very young. He was only 34 years old when he died of an aneurysm. Oh, wow. I know, very young. I mean, right, literally out of the blue. Um, and uh, he was a Navy anesthesiologist. A uh, really nice guy from West Virginia, and he, his career was in the Navy. And literally a month or two after he got out of the Navy, he uh, just out of the blue one one uh, Sunday morning uh, just collapsed and had a was hospitalized. Yeah, it was bad. I was seven years old, and uh, you know a lot of times tragedies uh, you know can really ruin people, and a lot of times it can kind of galvanize them. And I think for my family, um, I have another, I have a brother as well, and he's pretty accomplished as well. Um, he, he chooses to stay more anonymous, but he's a, he's an attorney and he's the CEO of a company. Um, wow. but, uh, you know, Kara is, she's a force of nature. She's incredibly smart. Um, so, so we, you know, I think valuing education, uh, it was a big, I come from a kind of a mixed family where one half of my family are Italian immigrants and the other half have been in this country for over 200 years, uh, from West Virginia. It used to be Virginia before it was West Virginia. And I think that there was a combination of pioneer spirit and immigrant spirit that uh, allowed us to be successful, really valued education. My mother is an amazing advocate for education. Roundlyx.com is one of my favorite companies in the entire crypto space. What they do is they take all your small purchases and they round them up to the nearest dollar and invest that money into any of 25 crypto assets of your choice. They integrate with your favorite exchanges so that you can round up into different assets all at the same time. And they do this all without ever holding any of your Bitcoin. This is by far the best way to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. You'll never even notice that the money has gone from your account and you'll look up one day and hopefully you'll have made thousands and thousands of dollars on crypto. 
roundlyx, that's R-O-U-N-D-L-Y-X.com. Go sign up now. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. You're a Stanford grad, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. too shabby as far as education goes. Well, keep in mind, though, Scott, that I went to Stan- I went to Stanford. I started there in 1978. And Stanford, it was a great institution then, but really it has been an amazing institution. Uh, and I think, of course, the Internet has propelled it into the stratosphere as far as you know donations. And I- I've been on the Stanford campus recently, and it's not recognizable. There's just so much building there. So, yeah, I went there as an undergraduate, but I, my first degree was in international relations, specifically Chinese-Soviet foreign policy. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, and then, and then when I graduated college, I had sort of this crisis of consciousness and decided that I, I wanted to be a doctor. And so I went back to college again. I got another degree from UC Santa Cruz, and then I went back to Stanford for medical school. Wow, that's actually very similar uh, to, to digress, but to, to my father, who's also a, a physician, he had a very similar sort of path. Um, it's interesting to hear. But I also went to the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia, but it's funny, it was the late 90s, and I, maybe it was like a, you know, a top 20 school or something, and now it's always a top five school. So I get the yeah. uh, added benefit down the road of pretending that it was one of the best schools in the country. Uh, right, exactly. When I went there. It was very similar. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I guess to, to jump back to uh, the topic at hand, sure. Uh, there's a few. I think there's a few simple things we can discuss that maybe people don't understand that would be really helpful. Like, for example, what's the proper way to wash your hands? Okay, so there's a good internet video that's going on right now. Some somebody, and I don't know where I saw it. I saw it on Twitter of a guy who's basically takes black ink in a pair of gloves. That. Did you see yeah. that? Yeah. I and did. It's it, great. It just goes to show you that you can't just do a little five second, you know, you know, squirt some soap on your hands and, uh, you know, rub them for a few seconds and then wash your hands and you're done. Uh, this really shows you that it really takes a good 20 or 30 or 40 seconds of really vigorous hand washing, uh, including, you know, you know, bunching up your fingertips into your palm and rubbing it around and, and basically try to cover your thumbs or they seem to That's be the, the one that got me. Yeah. Yeah. The thumbs <laughs> just don't, don't get washed. Uh, so soap is, is, is the number one thing that will, uh, kill, uh, it will, again, kill is a relative term because viruses, as you know, are not actually living things, right? They right. are, they're a, they're a compendium of RNA and, and protein. Uh, and they only can live by taking over a host cell replicating and then going on to do they're you know they're like the quintessential zombies you know um and so so getting rid of a uh, a viral particle is not that hard because the lipid bilayer which which encloses the rna is very easily disrupted by soap so even though hand you know purell etc works fine as long as it's above 60 percent isopropyl alcohol um, which is, does the same thing. Isopropyl alcohol will disrupt cell membrane or the uh, viral capsule, not a cell membrane, but a viral capsule. Uh, soap really does it. And you don't even need hot water. It Just water will do. Um, right. And it'll get rid of, uh, 
uh, of the virus on your hands. So you have to be very scrupulous about how you wash your hands. And then you have to be really careful about touching things, uh, especially around your face and mouth and, and nose and eyes. And that's really hard to do. I mean, it's really hard Impossible. to do. Impossible. I find that now that you think about it, you find that you're touching your face like 10 times a minute. Yeah. It's yeah, insane. constantly, constantly. Uh, you know, and the same thing, you know, you have all kinds of actions that you do that are involuntary. Like some people uh, lick their finger when they turn a page, I mean, for instance, or yep. they, they rub their eyes uh, when you get up in the morning. Well, you know, your eyes are a mucous membrane, too. Uh, and so by rubbing your eyes, the virus can enter your eyes as well. Uh, it turns out that this virus as well is uh, it, it, it's uh, definitely uh, in the GI tract. So obviously wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. Uh, be very fecal oral transmission. Yeah, yeah, oral fecal transmission. I mean, that's how a lot of viruses spread. You know, hepatitis A is a good example. That's, I, you know, I, I had it when I was a freshman in college, actually, from eating yeah. a uh, bad tomato in, in Egypt. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Like, you know, vegetables, et cetera. You know, lettuce in the fields are covered with dirt, which dirt is, you know, you use uh, dirt as a lot of man manure. manure. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, yes, yeah, so you have to be very careful about uh, very, very careful personal hygiene uh, with this. Uh, it's funny, our science experiment with my five-year-old, who now, of course, is homeschooled like everyone else last yeah. week, was to put uh, pepper in water and then drop, uh, you know, drops of soap in there to see how it dispersed. Right. Because we wanted to teach her how important washing hands was. So we decided uh, no, that better to do it now with a science experiment and get her interested. But I, you know, it's really unbelievable, even with something that simple to see how effective soap is. Right, right. Soap is amazingly effective. And the other thing too, is there's a lot of it. I mean, people have been hoarding uh, Purell and that one guy down in Florida who has like 17,000 yeah, 17, <laughs> cases of it. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah, that, that, that's super important to understand that just plain old soap and water is one of the best things you can do to, to, for hand hygiene. And, and just be careful about what you're touching. Obviously, when you sneeze, don't sneeze onto your hand. You know, use your right. elbow, et cetera. And this virus can live on surfaces for quite a long time. And, and uh, various surfaces, they can live longer, uh, less, that, less so on organic surfaces, but it still can live quite a long time. So that, 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 that is this whole social distancing thing that we have to be right. really careful of, yeah. So speaking of it living on surfaces, let's talk about things like food delivery, grocery right. delivery. Are those things right. safe? Um, you know, I think it's safer than going out to the grocery store and interacting with a whole bunch of people. So uh, I, I actually feel for the delivery drivers because they are actually putting their themselves out uh, yeah. on the line and, and risking themselves. So, you know, a shout out to all of those guys. You're doing, you know, you're doing great work. And it's keep really it. heroes. It's unbelievable. They Just are, they are heroes. Just every, 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 there's so many heroes in this. I think we're going to see profiles of some amazing people when we're all done. The food service workers are our heroes. I mean, people who prepare our food. Um, and so the, um, I think that you have to be careful with vegetables that come in. Remember that when you buy food in the grocery store, uh, all the fruits and vegetables that sit out, you know, they're, they're exposed to virus. I mean, they're just sitting out there in the produce shelf. Uh, so wash your produce when you get home. Uh, you should be doing that anyway, of course, but of course. It, 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 it double, it's double important that you can do, you can wash, uh, you know, vegetables with soap and water uh, as well. Uh, and then just, you know, rinse them off good. And uh, that's really important. Wow. Yeah, that gives you a lot to think about. So are there certain foods, uh, say you're actually ordering from a restaurant? I know a lot of people want to support local restaurants in this in their time of need here. Are mm -hmm. there certain foods that, you know, are safer than others? I mean, personally, I wouldn't order a salad. I'm, I'm not ordering anything, to be clear. We yeah. <laughs> stopped. It's just, I'm just not doing it. But like, yeah, yeah. Like if you live in a 
urban center, San Francisco, New York City, yeah. small apartment, you just can only store so much food. Right, exactly. So, you know, I'm certainly not a food expert. I mean, I like cooking it. If you look at my Twitter bio, you see it says amateur chef because I love I cooking. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm also an amateur carpenter, but I don't know if you'd want me to build your house. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the um, you know, common sense. I mean, I, I think you're right. Salads, it's hard to know where, where, you know, the salad is sourced from and whether it was washed, et cetera. But anything cooked, uh, cooking will definitely inactivate the virus. Uh, so that that's a good thing, but, but you know, if generally, someone sneezes on it after they cook it, yeah, then it's hard to know, right? You know, you have to try. Right. I mean, this is true outside of this uh, pandemic. I mean, there's a lot of foodborne illnesses, and a lot of times when people get sick, they think they're getting sick with a cold or something, but it could be that they have food poisoning from you know bacterial as well as. See, let's not forget bacteria in this whole thing too. Bacteria is what cause a lot of infections, E. coli, etc. Um, one of the reasons that we wear masks, uh, the main reason we wear masks in the hospital uh, is to protect you, the patient, against us, you know, against uh, us spreading, you know, oral, oral uh, bacteria on a surgical wound or E. coli or, you know, any of these uh, enterococcus bacteria that just lives normally on our bodies. You know, we try to avoid, you know, it's hard not to spread a virus. It's a lot easier not to spread a bacteria. Right. That makes sense. I mean, uh... I've, I've seen some sort of studies on it, and it's always astounding at how much bacteria lives in the human mouth. Oh, yeah. It's tons. I mean, it lives everywhere. I mean, we're, we're, we're just from, from, from everything we do, we're surrounded by, you know, little cooties and bugs and everything. Uh, but uh, the important thing in, in that we do in the operating room, sterile technique, is to try to avoid bacterial infection uh, uh, far, even above viral infection. Clearly, we don't want to transmit hepatitis or uh, or, uh, you know, any of the other, you know, HIV, et cetera. Uh, but bacterial infection is, you know, that's very dangerous. People get septic from bacterial infection and die, can die from it. Yeah. I mean, you hear all the time about people saying, you know, I don't want to be stuck in the hospital. They're generally not afraid of viruses. They're afraid of getting a bacteria. Yeah, of some sort exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Staff, you know, staff sepsis. And that's the kind of thing that kills patients who are stuck in the hospital more, more that's often right. than it, it, Yes. Yeah, then viruses for sure. Yes, definitely. Staph sepsis. And the body has very, you know, nasty reactions to, you know, let's say E. coli, which is a very common, you know, gut bacteria. But if you d develop E. coli sepsis, uh, that's very dangerous. And you produce, uh, it produces enterotoxins that cause your body basically to shut down. And it's, it can be very fatal if it's uh, systemic. And a huge part of that is hand washing by nurses and physicians as well, yes, correct? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. We My practice this. It's, it's review. I mean, we have when JACO, which is the organization that surveys hospital, they come and they actually have what are like the equivalent of secret shoppers that come into hospitals and watch yeah. how frequently doctors wash their hands. My, my dad, I mentioned previously, he was a physician, but he's also a pretty <laughs> prolific uh, inventor of specifically emergency medical devices, but others. But he had a company that's actually out there. It's called Hygrene. And what it did was forced uh, physicians and nurses to wash their hands. It basically was like a breathalyzer. They put alcohol in the soap. It sensed mm -hmm. it and it lit their, they had a badge they wore that lit it up green or red. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If they had washed their hands. But it was funny that actually all the insurance companies and everyone was resistant to it because they didn't want the liability of right. the proof that their nurses and physicians had. Yeah, been no, their I believe it. It reminds me of that far side cartoon of the guy coming out of the bathroom and a bell goes off that says, didn't wash his hands. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's true. I mean, we definitely need to be very, as I said earlier in the, in the podcast, very scrupulous about hygiene. 
So we touched a bit on social distancing. I think we all understand that that's probably the key to uh, mitigating the spread. Do you think that after this is all said and done, when there's a vaccine, do you think that to some degree more social distancing will become the norm? Um, I would like to think maybe it, it would, especially, you know, again, there's this is, you know, COVID-19. Will there be a COVID-21 or a COVID-24? Uh, you know, uh, who knows? I mean, I, the answer is, well, yes, there will be, because yes. it's only been, you know, six years since we had MERS. And before that, we had SARS. We had Ebola. I mean, this is the nature of the world that we live in as it becomes more global, because we have the ability to you saw that one. There was a very good Internet thing of people. Uh, leaving Wuhan, China, and it, it, each dot showed a, a, a person leaving. And it was just like the steady stream of people all over the world. Yeah. Uh, that I think if anything that it might happen is like this country is going to kind of wake up to the fact that we've maybe over relied on globalization for our supply chain and that we need to, uh, I mean, so many of the materials that we use, one of the reasons we have a PPE shortage uh, isn't necessarily just China. China. Yeah, it comes from China. There, it's mostly made in China. Uh, and same thing with iPhone components and everything else that we make. You know, we may have gone a little bit overboard in the quest for cheap labor to uh, to uh, make ourselves more vulnerable to this kind of uh, you know catastrophe. I um, mean, do you think in the future that things like handshaking should just basically be eliminated for a good uh, fist bump or elbow tap or a nod? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, I'm a pretty social guy and I'm a handshaker and it's been really hard. <laughs> yeah, it's really been exactly. I'm, like I said, I'm half Italian. It's hard because the Italian side of me wants to hug people. The West Virginia side of me makes <laughs> makes me not. <laughs> so, but uh, it's uh, it's a, uh, um, I, you know, you'd hope that, you know, big change happens. But as you know, often it's very typical for our country to stumble from Forget one crisis to the next. Yeah, exactly. So oh, I, yeah, I, we're certainly seeing it in the uh, financial markets, repeating everything from 2008 oh, yeah. as if it never happened. So Yeah, yeah, no, that's a very interesting thing. I've been very carefully following the financial markets. I know that you have a great interest in Bitcoin, and I've been, uh, I have a very big intellectual interest in Bitcoin. I can't say I'm an investor, but um, I, I think it's really interesting watching uh, the um, the market in Bitcoin, especially what the twelfth it was that it dropped forty yeah. percent in one in one day. It did. Uh, it, it, and it would seem to be the opposite, you know, to me. Since you, it, I, I kind of always thought of Bitcoin like like it was uh, like gold, right? That it would follow the same uh, market as gold. But it seems like you've got two sort of Bitcoin investors right now: those people who are believing it's a hedge against inflation. And then those people who are just speculators, and they're using seeing it like a, a a commodified, you know, you know, backed by cash resource that they can either that they can speculate on. Yeah, buy low, sell higher. Yeah, buy low, sell high, right? As opposed to you know, like gold, you know, you, you, you buy it and you hold it. Uh, yeah, I think the inflationary hedge narrative is still very accurate. I think that the uh, you know digital gold store of value off obviously took a hit, but you know, it's a very risky asset and there's never been a time in history when people rushed to something more risky when they're losing all their money and what they consider stable assets. So I don't right. find that drop necessarily surprising. I also, I mean, this is something for another conversation, but you know, I believe it's generally orchestrated by a few people who have a ton of Bitcoin and they generally yeah. move the market. So yeah. um, but, more, yeah. more likely it's not a bunch of people selling their Bitcoin because they're scared. It's just 
you know, taking advantage of news, these few yeah. people just kind of right. frictionless, frictionless order book. Right. Well, there was that whole thing with, uh, isn't there some kind of Ponzi scheme in Korea where there's a, there's a token? A, yeah. 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 That's exactly right. And I think some of that market volatility may be as a result of some of that activity, but, uh, sure. it's, uh, it's, it's interesting though. I mean, you know, one of the, of course you, you take it to the extreme, if we really have sort of go back to the, you know, Mad Max, uh, scenario, uh, if we don't have any computers to generate any more Bitcoin, we're going to be we're going to have a problem on our hands. But that God, you know, God help us if we ever get to that. Yeah, we talk about that. I've talked about that with quite a few guests, actually. And I always reference Mad Max or, or yeah. in this case, I am legend has been the other one that's been yeah. coming around because yeah, in New York City. But it's yeah, interesting. We're you know, talking about people sort of patterns repeating themselves, I mean, with markets, but also just in general. And I think with these diseases, going back to whether we will, you know, go to more social distancing, I think, you know, human emotion is the same, whether it's in markets or in behavior. And so I don't I mean, I'm not really that confident that people's behaviors will change, just like with anything else. They'll probably just forget and go back to the way it was because, yeah. Well, it would be interesting to go back into history and look at after the, you know, the Black Death back in, you know, the, you know, the 1100s and see, uh, you know, how, how did people change? I, I do think fundamentally that we're going to have some change in society. And listen, I think we're still at the very beginning of this thing. I think that uh, we're going to see a lot more mortality, a lot more morbidity. Uh, this is not going away anytime soon. And I think that's going to be the biggest uh, key thing. Like like reading today that Trump says he wants to wrap this thing up within 15 days. I, I, don't I was know, just going to ask you about that. Because, yeah, what, is, what is he talking about? But he's the kind, I mean, we can all, you know, I think whether you're a fan or not, I think we know that he's a somewhat impatient uh, person and he's watching the markets dump. And, you know, he's probably just sitting there biting his nails and freaking out at every minute as the market continues to drop and wants to get the economy back on track. And yeah, yeah. But the problem is my big fear is that, you know, like Fauci or something, those guys are going to leave. There's going to be no more scientists and it's going to go back to, you know, the uh, Boris uh, herd mentality thought because there's going to be so much financial pain. Yeah. You know, actually, this is a good point uh, to talk about this whole concept of you just said the word about herd mentality. There's a lot of you asked me before, is there a lot of um, kind of misconception? And I think the concept of herd immunity gets a lot of play uh, and it's used a lot incorrectly um, in, in, in the context of this uh, virus. So, so do you have a second to talk about herd immunity? Oh, yeah, I got plenty of time. Go. Okay, good. So, so the, the idea of herd immunity is that uh, when the herd, and you know, calling ourselves a herd, has enough exposure to a pathogen, that you, we develop an immune response. An immune response uh, is not a, a population-based thing; it's an individual-based thing. So, individuals within the herd develop antibodies to the bacteria or a virus, as the, you know, whatever the pathogen is. And once you develop enough people within that population that has developed immunity, it basically blocks the spread of the virus from one person or the bacteria from one person to another. So then you become, you know, as a, as a, as a society or as a population, relatively immune from it. And the virus essentially dies out or the bacteria dies out. So the crisis or the pandemic ends. That does not mean the virus goes away. Uh, it means that every, every now and then it'll crop up, but because enough people have developed immunity to it, um, now, in this particular situation, to like Boris Johnson, for instance, said, "Well, let's just have a big chickenpox party, and we'll all get you know coronavirus, and then we'll all didn't become, last. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't we'll, last we'll, too long. Yeah, we'll all become immune. Well, that's a very naive belief because number one, you're discounting the fact that 
you know, maybe 3%, maybe 4%, maybe 1%. It's hard to know, but a lot of people are going to die of this thing. And so basically it's saying, you know what, we'll sacrifice 1% or 3% of our population to develop herd immunity. That's a very steep price to pay. Especially uh, when you may not develop the herd immunity in the end. Right, because uh, no, this coronavirus may, uh, you know, mutate to something else. And so it may become another virulent, you know, uh, virus that doesn't uh, have um, the, the capacity for the antibody response to be effective. The more common way in modern societies to develop herd immunity is what's called vaccination, which you've mentioned. And the idea of vac uh, vaccination is we, we inoculate people with a facsimile of a virus or a bacteria or uh, these are, you know, an attenuated uh, or a non-live version. Uh, and we generate, you know, essentially we fool the body into thinking it actually had the infection and we vaccinate everybody, as many people as possible, so that it doesn't spread. That is the kind of herd immunity, which would be great. And people want to develop a vaccine for this, although it's very difficult uh, for coronaviruses uh, to develop a vaccine. For instance, we don't have a vaccine against the quote unquote common cold virus, which is... Right which is a coronavirus, or one of them is a coronavirus. Several of them are coronaviruses. Um, and I think it's going to be difficult to develop a vaccine against uh, this particular virus because of scientific characteristics of the immunologic nature of, of the virus. I'm not saying it's going to be impossible, but it's going to be hard. It's funny because I think the overwhelming consensus, if you listen to the news and stuff, is, hey, they're already testing it. We're 18 months away. Um, right. You know, because right. we need to you know, track a patient for 14 months to make sure that the vaccine isn't worse than the, the virus. Right. It doesn't kill them. But so it sounds like that's that's more hope than uh, fact at the moment. Yeah. I mean, you have to develop enough of, a, of, a, of, of an antibody. And so in order to do this, you have to have people who've been infected with this virus, who've recovered, who developed antibodies. You have to isolate those antibodies, test them against live virus, et cetera, et cetera. This is a long process. And then you have to do phase two studies where you have you know, small population, et cetera, before you release it to the general public. Because you're right, one of the one of the risks of a bad vaccine is that it can, let's say it precipitates an immune response, which the body, uh, it's not, it, it's, it's overwhelming to the body. And you develop a, a cytokine storm, for instance, to uh, the presence of, of this. I, I mean, I'm, I'm basically not talking as a virologist because I'm not a virologist. But, but uh, as I understand from some of my reading, developing vaccines is a very tricky business. So let's go with the best case scenario, which is that a vaccine is 18 months away. Mm -hmm. So if it takes 18 months uh, to approve, does that mean that at-risk people will be isolated until that time? Or can we hope for antiviral treatments to appear first that will lessen the mortality rate while we wait for a vaccine? Yeah, I think the latter. I think that ultimate, you know, I think some of the research that's being done now, let's say on chloroquine and azathioprine and some of the other retro antiretrovirals, uh, you know, if, if those are if those are successful, the idea is that we've isolated people, that the, the, the number of people infected goes down, thereby decreasing the pool of people who can get infected. And then we can you know, pick the ones off with uh, with medications um, and, and treat them uh, in anticipation of getting a, a, a vaccine. So I think that's the strategy for a lot of infectious diseases is that you develop I mean, HIV is a very good example. Um, the, the, you know, we haven't, quote unquote, cured HIV. Uh, people still get infected, but we've, we've been able to produce medications uh, that have basically been able to control HIV. So the mort mortality of developing uh, AIDS uh, or HIV-related you know, infections is far, far less than it was back in the late 80s and early 90s.
but they've been working on that vaccine for 30 years. Yeah, we, we don't. We, yeah, trying, we don't. We, yeah, we don't. Yeah. Trying to. We we don't have an AIDS vaccine. We right. don't have an HIV vaccine. Right. But but we have very very potent uh, anti uh, you know viral drugs that uh, that people can live full 100 percent normal lives um, you know with with HIV. Um, and maybe that'll be the case with the coronavirus. Maybe we'll develop drugs that can control uh, the, the pathogenicity or the mortality of this virus by these kind of medications. I mean, that's the hope, at least. Is that uh, a faster timeline? I mean, testing, because there's less risk, I would imagine, in giving someone an antiviral than there is in giving them a vaccine that hasn't been tested. So Yeah, yeah. And I think that the uh, exactly right. I, I think that, that uh, you know, you're going to have to have a relatively large sample size and, you know, a good research study, a crossover study that has got, uh, you know, for good science. Uh, you know, a lot of studies are started where they have, you know, classic double blind crossover studies and they... Uh, they unblind them because they see the results of one pool is so much better than the other that they basically stop the experiment. Um, there's certainly a lot of cancer drugs where that's the case, right? Um, and uh, and so it's important that you know we do support basic science research and try to figure out if there's a medical strategy that we can do this. So there's a public health strategy, and there's a medical strategy, and then there's a virology strategy. So all these strategies combined will help uh, hopefully mitigate this and. Uh, get us out of the pandemic phase and back into a more controlled phase so we don't overwhelm our hospitals. So before we, you know, to eliminate that pandemic phase or during that phase, people who are highly at risk are going to remain effectively in self-isolation or quarantine. I mean, is that correct? This notion of two weeks or a month or any of this is absurd. I I think so. I mean, certainly two weeks is is ridiculously absurd. It's like saying, okay, I'm done. I'm bored with this. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like a toddler saying I'm bored. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and that's sort of, I mean, again, I, I don't want to get overly political because no, you know, I, I, I try to be a, a doctor, <laughs> but the, the man's a toddler. He just does not have an attention span. Um, and, uh, and so I think that, uh, I think, um, uh, that we're, we're, we really have a problem here with, uh, you know, figuring this out in this current political administration. I, I'm very hopeful. Um, you know, I heard the other day on my sister's Recode podcast, uh, Ron Klain, K-L-A-I-N, who mm-hmm. was, uh, he worked for Joe Biden in his campaign, and he was Obama's Ebola czar uh, during the Ebola crisis. And this is a man, he, he's, he's such a comfort to listen to, because, uh, you, you know, if, if Biden does win, he will have intelligent people like that directing policy. Uh, as opposed to, you know, people like Wilbur Ross and these others, who, you know, or Mnuchin, who just don't get it. And, uh, you know, we, we need to have scientists help guide policy related to science and medicine and not, you know, economists, you know, you know who want to, uh, you know, basically make the markets go back up. Right. And but, you know, that's when you're a parent right now, like myself, who's at mm-hmm. home with two kids waiting for when my children will be able to go back to school. It's such a double-edged sword because you're like, I want my child to have a childhood (laughs) and to play with other five-year-olds and to have a life. But I also don't want my parents to be at risk, right? Exactly, exactly. Listen, I'm with- I personally can't see an argument for sending kids back to school, period, till next year. You know, I really don't. And I think that that's what I'm personally prepared for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's uh, my wife is a second grade teacher. And uh, I have to say, I, I, I had a, a very heartwarming moment this morning uh, because she had her entire second grade, grade class uh, uh, on her Zoom at, uh, awesome. 
our application. And I just I walked into the room and she's there with her little uh, pet dragon teaching phonics to a whole classroom of second graders uh, in our dining room. And uh, just you could see on these kids' faces the absolute joy of being able to connect even like that. And mm-hmm. there, there's another group of people, you know, of course, it's a little self-serving to give my wife credit, but, uh, but I will, because teachers are, you know, they're the backbone of this nation and, and, they are. and, and watching them, uh, and their dedication and, and when, you know, in, in this kind of setting to give hope to parents and to give hope to kids and to continue uh, a routine. Cause as you know, as a, as a parent of a five-year-old kids thrive on routine. Uh, and it's really important that we have those kind of people in our society. Yeah, we're fully doing school here. We have yeah. our whole routine and every hour we change it. And it's really hard to work in between. But she does need that, as you as you yeah. mentioned. Maybe yeah. one of the silver linings of this whole thing will be more appreciation for our teachers. Because I know there's a lot of parents at home going, what am I going to do with this oh, kid? Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah, even well, know how yeah. to teach them much less. Especially yeah. like if you have a kid who's taking AP high school classes or something. I mean, right. I don't remember calculus. If my child was doing calculus, I'd be pretty you much will. up the reach. <laughs> you will. I've, I've raised three kids into their 20s. And, uh, and uh, I, I had to relearn uh, calculus. I had to relearn basic chemistry. I had to relearn, ba- you know, like the, uh, you know, basic, uh, you know, quadratic equation and all that again and again. And, and I'll tell you, it was really actually fun. It's like, oh, fun yeah, it's I look forward to that. That's good. Yeah, it is fun. It really is fun. My five-year-old's already smarter than me in a lot of ways. So I'm learning <laughs> a lot of things I didn't remember even. Especially now. Generally, what is life in uh, San Francisco like at the moment uh, mm-hmm. on lockdown? Well, I'll tell you some of the benefits of living in San Francisco. I lived in Marin County, just north of the bridge. Right. Um, but uh, the main benefit is there's no traffic. Uh, so I can go to work now in, in, in record time. In fact, people have to be careful because the highway patrol is still out on the roads. There was a guy here that was in the paper the other day that got uh, his Ferrari going 120 miles per hour on, on 101. And he was surprised when the cops pulled him over. It's like, well, I didn't think anybody would be out. It's like, yeah, they're out. But uh, but the uh, number one, no traffic is great. Um, I mean, it's it's a little bit kind of strange. It's a surreal experience. It's a, a bit of a ghost town. I mean, Van Ness Avenue, which is the street where my hospital is, when I look out the window of my office, uh, Van Ness is empty. You know, you never see that. Uh, the stores are closed. Restaurants are closed. Bars are closed. Um, that's a little unusual. Um, the hospital, the main difference with the hospital is restricted access to the hospital. So, so now you can't have visitors if you're a patient in the hospital at all. Um, even in obstetrics, you're only allowed to have one visitor, which is the, you know, the other partner of the patient having the baby. I saw can't, they eliminated that in a lot of, uh, in a whole hospital system in New York city now already. They did. And that is something that we're still, you know, we still allow a partner to be with the, the, uh, the mother having the baby. But uh, we don't. Uh, we are considering not, and that is just devastating. Not seeing your it child is. be born. Uh, so that's that's a big thing. The other thing is is that when you walk into the hospital, you're screened very carefully. Uh, uh, even if you're an employee or a physician or a nurse or whatever, everybody gets their temperature monitored walking into the hospital. Uh, all visitors get screened with a series of te- of, uh, of uh, verbal tests. You know, have you traveled? You know, outside the country, etc. Uh, and so it's a little bit more of, of a lockdown mode. Uh, in the hospital. And that, that, uh, and I think that the, a sense of purpose, that's the other positive thing is that 
everybody in the hospital, you know, depending on regardless of your job, whether you're a housekeeper, whether you're a, or a technician or uh, surgical tech, anesthesia tech, uh, scrub nurse, circulating nurse, uh, physician, surgeon, et cetera, they all seem to be pulling together. And, you know, that sounds, uh, you know, kind of trite and it sounds a little bit Pollyannish, but it's true. It really is happening. I don't think it sounds trite at all, actually, because I think everyone's hope is that that's how society in general will react, you know, pull together rather than, uh, even though we have social distancing, there's really yeah. that chance that people will, I mean, especially if people start to get hungry or don't have money that, you know, there's, sure. there's that, as you mentioned, that Mad Max sort of yeah. element, that's right. certainly a fear that it could go that way. So that even seeing it in a, in a microcosm, like the hospital, I think can give people hope that yeah. uh, people will pull together that way everywhere. Yeah, I've been very impressed with how people are generous. And UCSF medical students, for instance, uh, organized a drive to have N95 masks, et cetera, donated to the hospital. You know, medical students in this setting aren't particularly that useful in the hospital. And I don't want to denigrate medical students because they're amazing. They are literally the, the future of our, our group. But they haven't had enough experience yet to be particularly helpful Um in the hospital, but they have a tremendous amount of knowledge and they have the ability to help outside the hospital and they have a, definitely the ability to educate people. Uh, so whether they're on Twitter or anything like that, um, I, I yeah. have been a little, I've been a little disappointed in some of the things that I've seen, like you said, the Fort Lauderdale or places like that, that people, <laughs> yeah, people really need to get the message. And today I, um, actually I published a very long, like 12 part tweet today, uh, which, uh, Fortunately, uh, Kara retweeted, and then a bunch of other people have been retweeting it, um, that it kind of goes out um, uh, on my, you know, I'm at, at Jeffrey Swisher, if you want to look me up on Twitter. I was going to um, ask you that at the end, so perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, so, and so I try to not overwhelm my feed with all kinds of tweets, but every now and then I'll post something uh, that I think is important for people to know. And last night, one of my friends, who is an amazing person, he's a toy inventor, have, have you ever played Bop It? Uh, of the course. Game? Well, my friend Dan Klitzner invented Bop It, uh, nice. and uh, he's one of my neighbors and a long, long time friend of mine. So last night he called me and he said, you know, he has two sons that are the same age as my sons, you know, in their mid twenties, and he said, you know, how do I educate these guys? They're, they're, you know, one's down in Los Angeles, one's up here. That really the social distancing thing is important, and that they're not immune to this. So I thought about it a bit, and I wrote uh, about it uh, yesterday, and I really hope that people get that message out there, that social distancing works, and it works for a good reason. Uh, there, there was a, a tweet that was running around last week that was a really good, it was a, an English mathematician who it was explaining the whole multiplier effect. Uh, like, for instance, coronavirus, just by casual contact, one person can easily affect seven to eight people uh, with just casual contact. Um, and that is like saying hi, you know, being a foot away, shaking hands, giving somebody a hug, playing basketball, uh, you know, these kind of common things that we do every day. Contrast that to the flu virus, influenza, it, it's not that easy to catch relative to coronavirus. I'm not saying it's not easy, but it's not that easy. So one person infects about 1.3 people uh, that they contact on, on average. Um, but if you multiply that out by 10 iterations, in other words, you know, one person does to another, to another, to another, by 10 people, you, that one contact, that one index case for the flu, only 14 people are infected after 10 iterations. Whereas with coronavirus, it's about 50,000. Yeah, it's you know, parabolic. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's uh, just because of the numbers associated. You can, you can really see how it's possible that so many people can get affected so fast. 
The other problem with coronavirus, as I've mentioned, is that it has a longer latency period. So you could be carrying this virus for four to seven to 10 days and not know that you're infected, all the while infecting a lot of other people. Hence the importance of social distancing until we get a handle on this thing. Well, this has been uh, beyond informative. And I think that there's a lot of practical knowledge here that people can really grapple onto and use, uh, certainly going forward. Um, once again, is there anywhere else that you would like people to be able to find you? Obviously, we've got at Jeffrey Swisher on Twitter. Yeah, uh, that's the best place. Uh, you can always reach me. You know, if you if you just Google me on the Internet, you'll see I'm, I'm at the chairman of anesthesia at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. And if you call the hospital and you can talk to my secretary, uh, leave a message. I'm pretty good about getting back to people um, who uh, either write me or email me. Uh, my email is jlswishmd at gmail.com. Uh, that's my first two initials, JL, just swish, not swisher, just swishmd at gmail. And again, Twitter is probably the best way. I'm also on Facebook. Um, um, and Instagram as well. Uh, I, I'm pretty for, for a 59 year old. I'm pretty lit, you know, hooked in. And, and LinkedIn sure. as well. I'm on LinkedIn as well. <laughs> awesome. So uh, there actually now there's one more question I want to ask before sure. we get yeah. to that. Uh, yeah. how, how can the average individual help beyond the social distancing and staying away from people, but like with supply shortages or food or any of those things right. as, as this, uh, progresses and people realizes it's not just a two week thing and maybe people right. start to get hungry or, or broke. Right. Well, so certainly people can donate to food banks um, and they can donate money to food banks, uh, places that'll help. You know, San Francisco has got a huge percentage of homeless people in it. Of course. And, uh, you know, all cities do. Uh, but San Francisco, it, it, in particular, it, it, and so these people are out there. It's very difficult for them to socially distance because they rely on other people in order to live. Uh, and we're going to start seeing a big percentage of these people fall ill to this and don't have the resources to get better. Uh, and it's going to overwhelm our county hospitals. So, you know, think about the places uh, where you your your money could best, you know, if you donate it to various Red Cross organizations, to health organizations, to, um, you know, any kind of societies in your in your cities that that help these homeless people who really need the help. Uh, they'll need it. You know, even if we weren't having a pandemic, it's a, it's a it's a crisis. Uh, and then, you know, think about elderly neighbors who might be shut-ins. Um, you know, again, you don't want to be contacting them, but there are, if you want to have food delivered to them, you could always call up, you know, Amazon and, uh, you know, have food delivered to them if, if the need be. Is I, I think the biggest thing is think about your neighbors and think about who needs what and what you can uh, donate, whether it's, uh, you, I, you know, again, we don't want you contacting people and, and getting in physical presence, but there's a lot of way to help people through just checking in by telephone, by Facebook, by Zoom, by whatever mechanism, uh, and make sure that your elderly relatives are uh, are taken care of, that they're not, you know, there's a tendency, especially among the elderly, to kind of like shrug a lot of this off. Of uh, but it's, it's important that they don't shrug it off. It's really important because they're the most susceptible to this. Um, so I think that's, that's the best thing that you can do. Uh, if you have a whole supply of N95 masks, <laughs> get them somewhere. Yeah, yeah, get get them somewhere. You know, a lot of people got them for the fires, um, and I think that's where we're seeing a lot of donations to the hospital. People stocked up on them. And the other thing is, don't don't hoard toilet paper. Like, why 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 are you hoarding toilet paper? I, I don't get that. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't need five thousand rolls of toilet paper. I don't know what you're doing with it, but. Uh, Make a mattress um, or something. I yeah, don't know. something. But, you know, just think about other people. I, I see people in stores just cleaning out whole shelves of Trader Joe's. Uh, think about what you need and take what you need and, and give what you can give. 
Well, that's great advice. And thank you once again so much. I think that, uh, as I said, this is going to be extremely valuable and that uh, there, there's a lot here for people to process and it's going to be really, really helpful. So I do really appreciate your time once again. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at Scott Melker to continue the conversation. See you next week.